Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. While the world has been watching Gaza and the ongoing horrors unfolding there, what's happening in the other Palestinian territory, the West Bank, has barely been noticed. But in normal times, it would have made global headlines. The tensions in the West Bank continue to rise. To date, a large number of Palestinians have been killed since Hamas terrorized Israel on October 7th. Since 7 October, nearly 1,000 Palestinians from at least 15 herding communities have been forced from their homes. In fact, tensions in the West Bank have been ratcheting up for months. This was back in July. And now to breaking news overnight from the Middle East. Palestinian militants fought with the Israeli soldiers in the West Bank city of Jenin after Israel's biggest military assault in the area in decades. In the weeks since Hamas unleashed a terrorist attack on Israel on October the 7th, violence in the West Bank has risen by almost four times, leading to over 180 deaths, almost all of them Palestinian. Settler attacks have been on the increase for a decade now. 800 in the last year alone, some three a day. The appeal is a matter of urgency for Israeli authorities to take immediate measures, to take steps to ensure the protection of Palestinians in the West Bank, who are being on a daily basis subjected to violence from Israeli forces and settlers, ill-treatment, arrests, evictions, intimidation and humiliation. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, why the West Bank could be a new front in the Middle East conflict. I am Catherine Felt. I am the World Affairs Editor for The Times, and I am currently in Israel. And Catherine, you've recently been to the West Bank, Just remind us a bit about the territory and just how different it is to Gaza. Obviously, a lot of attention has been paid to Gaza in recent weeks. Mm -hmm. Just remind us a bit of the history of the West Bank and where it is and and how it's run. The West Bank is called the West Bank because it's the West Bank of the Jordan River. And until 1967, it was under Jordanian rule. What happened when the State of Israel was established in 1948 was this is the area that was taken over by 
Jordan when there was the Arab-Israeli war um, that broke out with the establishment of the State of Israel. This is the area that the, the Jordanians took over until a subsequent war in 1967 when Israel pushed the Jordanian army back across the Jordan River and occupied uh, these areas that are what the Palestinians would like to have as the, a future state. The original UN mandate this, that recognized the state of Israel also provided for a Palestinian state. But it would have been in these areas. It never happened because Israel's Arab neighbors refused to accept the establishment of the Jewish state of the state of Israel. And so in international parlance, in international law, that area is seen as occupied Palestinian territories. That's the policy of the British government, of most other governments around the world, on the grounds that it is illegally occupied by Israel as it was seized by force, contrary to the Geneva Conventions. Israel does not see it that way, but nor does it see it as part of the state of Israel. It is disputed land in Israel's thinking, but it has remained that way now for some 58 years. You have obviously Palestinian communities with families who have often lived in, in those areas for hundreds of years. And then much more recently, Jewish settlements, most of which have been built since 1967. And it used to be one joined up unit, but with often illegal settlements that have sort of come along in recent years, it, it is a bit more divided. It's extremely divided. And I think that one of the most interesting things you can see to see what's changed over those years is, is one of these kind of animated maps that show the growth of the settlements and where they have been situated. And it is astonishing. It ends up looking like a Swiss cheese. Now, I'm aware as I'm speaking that all these terms are disputed by one side or the other. I will continue to call these um, the Occupied Palestinian Territories because just as Hamas in Britain is legally a terrorist organisation, those territories are, under British policy and international law, occupied Palestinian territories. So I'm not inferring any kind of politics by the vocabulary I'm using, I'm, I'm using what is internationally recognised in that way. Now, how the West Bank compares to Gaza is also interesting because this is another reason why a future Palestinian state is such a sort of difficult geographical entity to get your head around because, of course, Gaza is completely cut off from the West Bank. It's on the right on the other side with the state of Israel in between. It's, it runs along the coast it's got a border with Egypt as well as with Israel, and it is not linked in any way to the West Bank. It's obviously got a very diff different political character, which I suspect we'll go on to discuss. But one of the problems with um, a future Palestinian state would be how you would join these two areas, Palestinian areas, up with each other. And they're also very different in terms of political leadership. Just spell out the differences between them. Obviously, the conflict that's going on in Gaza at the moment is a conflict between Israel and Hamas, which is in many parts of the world a prescribed terrorist organization. It won a vote there back in 2006. Hamas is a much more religiously driven movement than the, the Fatah, the party that is traditionally stronger in the West Bank and the Palestinian Authority which runs the West Bank. Now, 
a lot of Palestinians will tell you that the Palestinian Authority is uh, useless, corrupt, weak, unable to protect them, things like that. They are not a terrorist organization. It doesn't regard the Palestinian liberation struggle in inverted commas the way that Hamas does. It's frankly more incompetent than it is violent or or militarized the way that Hamas is. And Catherine, you, you know, as you say, the West Bank now is more like a Swiss cheese. It does have lots of these sort of Israeli settlements inside. Some of those are illegal by international law. Some of those are illegal also by Israeli law. Just explain how how the different settlements uh, have formed. So the idea really of building settlements was their presence there. Would one establish a Jewish presence in the case of a future settlement and give leverage, but also that it would justify the presence of Israeli security forces. So those are the legal settlements. The, the international community largely disapproves of them, calls them an obstacle to peace. Now, that takes us on to the illegal settlements or outposts. And I think we so we use that term just to make the distinction in your mind. So outposts are not legally sanctioned by the government. There's no permit. They're often built by settlers of a more extreme mindset. They'll establish an outpost on land. Quite often that is actually held, you know, deeds may be held by Palestinians who possibly no longer live there or have been moved off. And it's a very peculiar situation. So this one I was at, Esh Kadush, you go there and there's a, you know, there's an official road sign for it. And yet it's an illegal settlement. So it's technically not meant to be there under Israeli law, but it has mains, electricity, water and a road sign set up by the authorities. Some of these outposts do get retrospectively, retroactively rather, um, legalised by the government. So Catherine, that's really interesting. I think for people who don't know this world, so just, just to clarify, firstly, these are all illegal settlements under international law, but some are specifically illegal under Israeli law too. Yes. But as you say, they have road signs, they receive um, electricity and water, which is all must be sanctioned by the Israeli government. So the Israeli government, even though they're illegal, work around them, make allowances, don't force them to move. Yes. And, and there's a phrase um, that's very aptly used about this conflict in general and the situation in the West Bank by Israel, which is creating facts on the ground. So you create the facts on the ground by recognizing, oh, dear, those people have moved there. Oh, well, they need electricity. We'll give it to them. And bit by bit, those become permanent villages, despite the fact they are illegal. Now, with that very complicated backdrop, you've recently been visiting some of these areas. You took a trip to a Palestinian village in the West Bank last week. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, I went to a place called Kusra. It's a pretty typical village. It lies on the main road, Route 60, that runs all the way down the West Bank. So it's it's in a strategic position as far as the settlements are concerned. And it's almost surrounded. If you look on a map now, just settlement growth over time has meant that it's almost surrounded. It's a very average place. It's this reasonably large village. It's got a kind of a, a downtown and a feels like a small town as much as a village. Like a lot of these Palestinian towns and villages, the people who live there are, a lot of them are farmers and they're olive farmers and their olive groves 
lie at a distance from the village, which means that the people there are often having to go back and forwards towards their their olive groves, many of which sit under hilltop settlements and outposts that are very close by and obviously are at a sort of strategic, have the strategic advantage over them because they're on the hillside. So this is why you get a lot of this interaction and friction between the two communities because of the way that the settlements are spread out and where the villages are compared to their agricultural land and the fact that they have to travel back and from. And that's where the two communities often clash. So there have clearly been clashes there for a while, you know, predating October the 7th. How have things changed since Hamas launched its attack? Over the last few years, there had been problems with settlers, mostly from not from the nearest legal settlement, but from one at a slight distance, Eshkadosh. And there have been clashes when settlers, according to the villagers of Kusra, have come down to try and intercept them as they try to reach their olive groves. There's also been attacks on the trees themselves, trees uprooted or burned down. The Palestinians will say to you that this is an attempt to get them to leave, to get them off the land so that the settlers can take it over and have it to themselves. And there have been deaths. Um, I think over the last few years, there's been about three people in Kusra killed in um, encounters with settlers. What happened just four days after the October 7th Hamas massacres outside of Gaza was that it seems that a bunch of settlers from Eshkadesh came down to Kusra to agitate in some way, not clear. They were coming towards a house on the outskirts of Kusra and they began firing. And there's video of all of this. The West Bank is so tense now. It's absolutely blanketed in CCTV. I think Palestinians tend to feel this is the only way they can ever prove anything against the Israeli settlers or, or defence forces there. What happened was that a group of the villagers went to try and get to the house to, to evacuate the family that was there. There were women and children there. They seemed to have started getting into a clash with the settlers where they were throwing stones and the settlers were firing. And it ended up with four people dead and 40 wounded. That must have had a a difficult impact on the area. Everyone said they could feel the tension from October 7th. They felt that, you know, they were going to be sitting ducks for potential revenge attacks for that. And that seems to be exactly what happened because the way the settlers went in that hard had not happened before. Problem was that they were trying to evacuate the wounded from the village. They couldn't go where they ought to have gone, the nearest hospital, because that road had been closed by the military. And by the time they got to the hospital, there was no saving these four people who ultimately died. But they were now stuck with these bodies of four villagers. So with this huge tension, they had to figure out how they were going to get back to the village without incident. And so the mayor of Kusra started speaking to an Israeli general in the area about how they could do this, what would be the best route. And the general 
said, you know, go this way. And he said, well, we can't because you've closed that road. And he's like, okay, hold on. Okay. As they are on the journey back, they get a call from the Israeli general saying, you can't go that way. The settlers are waiting for you. It's an ambush, essentially. And this happens three more times that their route has changed. And then finally, the general calls back and says, okay, this is fine. This is fine. And we, you can go this way. It's clear. And we'll be there to protect you. What happened was that most of them got through, but one car that was following um, behind at the end of the, essentially the convoy came along and was caught in an ambush by settlers. Again, this is also on video. So you can actually see a civilian car with unidentified people in it opening fire on another car. Again, they weren't killed immediately. The car continues. And then they were also taken away and taken to hospital where they were pronounced dead. In 24 hours, six people were killed in this village and two of them at the funeral of the four who had been killed the day before. Coming up, with the death toll rising daily, will the West Bank flare up and open up another front in this war? That's in just a moment. It must be incredibly hard for people who live there to feel like they can carry on life in any normal way. What's interesting about that story, though, is that you sort of see the complexity of the region in that the Palestinians were working in conjunction with the Israeli general to try and make things pass off safely. And yet it was the settlers who, ignoring the official Israeli line, were still attacking them. I think a lot of people probably don't know very much about how those settlements work. I know you've you've actually been to visit Eshkadesh, mm. the settlement they came from. Just tell us a bit about that. Tell us a bit about the people who live there and what it's like and why, you know, it seems to go even against the Israeli state at times in its in its desire to attack some of the people in the West Bank. One of the most interesting details was I, I almost didn't get to Eshkadesh because I arranged to meet a spokesman for the settlement, the outpost, and he wouldn't um, meet us there. He met us in an, a nearby official settlement of Shiloh. Um, and we did say, you know, why did you not want us to come there? Do, would we not have been welcome? He said, oh, no, 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 of course you'd be fine. Of course you'd be fine. I sort of jokingly said, well, I mean, what would happen if we went? They wouldn't shoot us, would they? And he said, like, oh, no, don't be silly. But he clearly didn't want to take us in there. And he said that there was enormous distrust of the international media. And then we said, look, we may just go up and have a look just so we, you know, can, can see what it's like. And he sort of shrugged and said, OK. So we did go up there. I mean, firstly, the people who live in those outposts, you could recognize them if you saw them outside of the settlement, you would know who they were. They dress in a particular way and they, they're they known as messianic Jews. So they're not like ultra-Orthodox Jews or they're not like some national religious Jews. The men will have long forelocks, 
like ultra-Orthodox Jews, but they won't wear the black hat. It's not from that Haredi background. A lot of the men will wear a kippah, but they, it's very, these very distinctive knitted kippahs that you tend to see in communities like that. Women will often have a head wrap covering up their hair, and they'll often wear you know, long dresses, modest clothing. You wouldn't see people like that living in Tel Aviv. You got the sense that they were sitting in their outpost, looking down at a landscape full of people who they believe want to kill them. And it was real. It didn't feel like a manufactured sense of threat. They genuinely feel it. And then, of course, the sadness of that is that the Palestinians are looking back the same way. You spoke to somebody in Eshkadesh, a man called Nati Rom. Tell us a bit about him. He's a lawyer uh, for a pro-settler movement. He serves in one of the civilian sort of security guard groups, militias, whichever you wish to call it. And so he's part of that kind of group whose duty it is to protect the outpost. He's fairly uncompromising. Anywhere else you'd call him a hardliner. He talked about this being a conflict between darkness and evil. People want to kill us and to eliminate Israel, but to understand that we are here in a big fight between darkness and light. His sense that the entire Palestinian population was essentially brainwashed and radicalized against Israelis. Like a lot of villages around here, they all want to kill us. It's um, difficult to our mind and soul our Western mind and soul to digest oh. even this uh, thing that there is somebody who wants to eliminate your race on earth. He said he wanted to get rid of all radical Islamists, but then proceeded to more or less define every single Palestinian that way. What proportion of the population would you consider radical Islamists? How many That's do you think? Question. I think the majority. You know, he took a long time to sort of I suppose, um, kind of relaxed with me because he just kept seeing me as a Westerner who was obviously going to try and trip him up. You know, and why do you want to speak to us? You should be covering Gaza. And it's like, well, we've been doing lots of that, but we also wanted to come here. I said, do you see what's happening in Gaza? And and how does it make you feel when you look at it? And he said, oh, I try not to look at that stuff. And then, you know, we, we sort of talking at cross purposes for a while before I realized that what he's actually referring to is the footage of the October 7th attack. Oh, not what's happening in Gaza now. He was incredulous that I was actually suggesting, asking him, had he watched any of the news actually out of Gaza and what was going on there? I just wanted to see, you know, how he felt about it. I wasn't asking him to care about it or demanding that he did. I just thought, you know, he must have seen it. But he just, yeah, I think he just couldn't couldn't understand why I would be asking him that or why he would watch it. And Catherine, given that level of tension, you know, that already existed pre-October the 7th, I guess a lot of people watching it from afar will be wondering, why hasn't the West Bank kicked off in the way that Gaza is now in a full-scale war? Violence has sword. But you're right, it hasn't gone into sort of full intifada mode, but it it feels tense, it crackles, it feels like it could go off any time. And I think I said that to you before about having been in in Janine in July, it did not feel sustainable. 
The Israeli military staged a large-scale raid in the occupied West Bank overnight. Palestinian health officials say at least eight Palestinians have been killed and more than a dozen injured. Israel says it was targeting the command center for militant fighters in Jenin as part of what it called an extensive counter-terrorism effort. I think the fact is now that the Israelis have really quite tight control over it. They've got good intelligence, they've got informers, and they have the, the cooperation to some degree of the Palestinian security forces. But essentially, the, the Israeli military are able to just charge into the center of a Palestinian town or city and raid it if they think that there is a threat there. We've seen a bit more of that happening in the West Bank. But then also the nature of the violence, even then before October 7th, had changed with more, more kind of these lone wolf attacks. In the last hour, two Israeli uh, border police, they're known as, uh, were stabbed, a female and a male officer, both in their 20s, at one of the gates that allows you into uh, the old city known in Arabic as Al-Zahra. So obviously there are weapons getting into the West Bank from outside and also looted or sold from Israeli military stocks too. And obviously there's money going in there from people like Iran who are sponsoring some of the groups there like Hamas because Hamas are present in the West Bank, even if it's not their stronghold. So that money and stuff's going in. But you've got a lot of these younger militants who are much more loosely directed from above than, say, Hamas, which is an extremely hierarchical organization. So Mm. they have been you know, a lot of these solo or small group attacks. What's changing is that really that since this very pro-settler, very right-wing government came in, there seems to be much more action from the settlers with a certain degree of impunity or protection from the Israeli military. Do you think the West Bank could kick off? And if so, how would the Israelis cope with a second front? Well, I mean, it's actually being referred to as a threatened third front because, I mean, today, just as we've been speaking, there's been an awful lot of action on the border with Lebanon. The skies over the Israel-Lebanon border have been thick with smoke almost constantly for the last month. But in recent days, the exchange of fire between Israeli troops and Hezbollah fighters has intensified. You know, it's still not clear to us whether that can be avoided as a opening up as a Hezbollah-Israel front. I don't think that Israel genuinely want a front in Lebanon with Hezbollah, but there's enough concern that they might, that the Americans have spoken to them about it and tried to say to them, you can't handle this. This is too much. Now, if the West Bank were to go up as well, yeah, I mean, they'd be pretty stretched. Insurgencies are much more difficult to, to cope with in a way than, I mean, you know, whatever you think of the way that they deal with Gaza or Lebanon, it's it's not their territory. If the West Bank were to go up in flames, that is a mixture of Palestinian and Israeli communities within one territory. So yeah. it's, a, it's a totally different ballgame to Gaza and not one that they would welcome. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, The Times World Affairs editor, Catherine Philp. 
Catherine is just one of The Times journalists currently reporting from the Middle East. You can read all of our coverage from the region at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription. The producer today was Edward Drummond. The executive producer was Fiona Leach. And sound design was by Tom Birchall. If you can, please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.